The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Most gracious God and Father, mighty to save, infinite in compassion toward the nations that know thee not, and the tongues which cannot speak thy name. We humbly thank thee that thou hast made the church of thy dear son the chariot of the gospel to tell it out among the heathen that thou art king and to bear thy love unto the world's end. And for all thy servants who counted not their lives dear unto them on this employment, and for all peoples newly praising thee, we praise and bless thee, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one Lord and God forever. Amen. That is an ancient collect for missions. This is... Let's fix the screen here. And it's an appropriate one for where we are today. We are in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35, and we're going to go ahead and read through chapter 10, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them, let's go ahead and do so. And Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed them. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The famous Swiss theologian Emil Brunner once said that the church exists by mission as the fire exists by burning. Uh, that was his way of reminding us that a true Christian church is always, always at its heart, a missionary church. I have a good friend who's the retired Bishop of Pittsburgh, and he says that if you are a Christian and you do not have a heart for mission work, he said that you only have half the blessing of the gospel. Half the blessing of the gospel. We think it's all about going to heaven when we die, but he says actually the blessing is not just the future salvation that we have, but the joy of serving the Lord in the here and now. And I think that's absolutely true. I pointed out to you before that there are only two real missionary religions in the world today. And those two missionary religions, of course, are Christianity and Islam. We're the only ones that have been given a missionary mandate. And I think that's one of the reasons why these two religions here as we fast approach almost the mid-century mark are in competition with each other. You know, Christianity is not in competition with Hinduism, really. Hinduism doesn't have that kind of a missionary mandate. The same thing is true for Taoism or Buddhism. Those religions don't have a mandate to go out and make converts. Only Christianity and Islam do. In fact, not even Judaism has a missionary mandate. In fact, for Judaism, it's the exact opposite. The Jews were commanded to come out from among them and what? Be separate, like the Amish. Uh, they were supposed to be so different from all the other peoples around them that they would attract people to them. But they did not have a mandate to go out and make disciples. Only Christianity and Islam do. And of course, the mandate is different. We are to do it by peaceful means only, whereas Islam is to do it by peaceful means if possible, but by any means if necessary. But the reality is we are competing for disciples because we are missionary religions. Archbishop William Temple put it well. He said, 
The church is the only institution that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. I pointed this out to members of the vestry uh, yesterday. Uh, that's an odd thing, isn't it? Most of the organizations that we are members of exist for the sake of those who are already its members. If you're the member of a club or you're the member of an investment organization, that organization exists what? For the benefit of its members. The church is the only institution, and this is striking to us, but the church is the only institution that actually exists for the sake of those who are not its members. So while we as the members of the church may derive a benefit, the purpose of the church is to reach out to seek and save the lost. So if we are not a missionary church, we are not a church in the true biblical New Testament sense. Now why should we do mission work? I want to suggest to you five motivations today as to why we, as the people of St. Philip's in particular, but as Christians in general, should be engaged in missions. The first should be pretty obvious to us, and that is the lost condition of the world. The good news about living in the day in which we live is that we get a real picture of what's happening everywhere across the globe. In a former generation, most people thought nationally. They didn't think globally. They were concerned with what was going on in their own little neighborhood, their own state, perhaps their own nation. And that's about all they knew. They really didn't know what was going on. Americans, in particular, had a real isolationist attitude and policy. We weren't really concerned with what was going on in other parts of the world. We were primarily concerned with what was going on here and only concerned with what was going on elsewhere to the extent that it affected us at home. Well, that's not the world in which we live anymore. We live in a global world. We have a global economy even. It's not just what happens here that affects us. We recognize that China, having the largest population in the world and the largest economy in the world, if China catches the cold or sneezes, we get it too, don't we? That's the kind of world with which we're living. And it is a world that is struggling. It is a world that is confused. We, we look at the news, whether it's the BBC or it's MSNBC, and we quickly realize that the world is in a desperate state. <laughs> I mean, look what's going on in Britain right now with Brexit. Look at what's going on home here with the Mueller probe and all the conflicts in Washington, D.C. And you can see what's happening in other parts of the world as well. It is a desperate place. And if we have any concern whatsoever for the world, we should have a heart for mission. Because I want to be very clear about this. The Christian gospel is the only thing that has the power and the potential to set the world right. I pointed this out on Sunday. We're working our way in the rector's form through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we came to that whole subject of slaves be obedient to your masters that Paul deals with. And I said that people have sometimes been critical of the Apostle Paul because Paul never came out and in any way outright condemned slavery. He never called for a social revolution. But I pointed out that what's interesting is that Paul didn't call for an end or immediate emancipation to slavery in the ancient world, but then neither did Jesus. <laughs> now, that's not because they were advocates of, of a, a system that had slavery. It was because they realized that you cannot change the world by changing laws. Now, that's what we think. If we can just pass a certain number of laws, we can change the world. We can legislate morality. But let me tell you something, folks. It doesn't work. Because the problem is not out there in the culture. The problem is where? The problem is here in our hearts. And if you can change a person's heart, then you can change their mind, you can change their lives, you can change everything else. And one by one, person by person, soul by soul, you eventually begin to change a community, you begin to change a culture, you begin to change the world. And there's only one thing that has the power and the potential to change a person's heart, and that is the gospel. That's the gospel. So one of the reasons we should be motivated to be engaged in mission work is if we are concerned about the world in which we live. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm coming to the end of my time on earth. But at the very least, be concerned for your children and for your grandchildren. I mean, I am deeply concerned for my children. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like for my grandchildren, but I just look at the world in which my children are growing. My wife and I had a conversation about this the other day, and we've got a teenager living in the house with us right now. We've got two that are out of the house, we've got two that are in the house, and the girl happens to be a teenager, and that can be very frustrating at times. 
And she said, I don't understand. She's been raised in a Christian home. Why does she sometimes struggle and rebel? I said, because the world is totally different from the world in which you and I grew up. I, I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have to worry about that. I came home for the weekend, and I didn't know what anybody else was doing. And for that matter, I didn't care what anybody else was doing until I showed up for school again on Monday morning. That's not the way it is for these kids now. They are constantly bombarded in social media and so forth. The temptations quite literally are manifold. It is a very different world. And if you want to bequeath to them one which is stable and strong and healthy, you need to be concerned about the gospel going out into all the world. So the gospel alone can change people's hearts. Jesus said it's not the problem out there, the problem is in here. Second reason, second motivation we should be uh, about mission is this. Jesus commanded it. I mean, we confess Jesus to be our Savior and our what? Our Lord. Well, the Savior, of course, is the one who delivers you from peril, but the Lord is the one who what? Commands you. And Jesus commanded that we be engaged in mission. In fact, the last words, you might see, Jesus' last will and testament to his disciples prior to his ascension was that they should do what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, instructing them in the things that I've instructing you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Those were Jesus' last words to his disciples. It was a missionary mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if we are Christians, you cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have Jesus as Lord. This is not an option for us, you see. It is a command. So that's the second reason why we ought to be engaged in this. It's because we are commanded. And if we are doing that is the proof that we are really serving the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So that's the second motivation to be engaged in mission work. Third motivation is this, the love of God compels us. If we are Christian, God has given to us a little bit of his own heart. One of the remarkable things about the passage that I just read to you here was that Jesus, as he went out through all of the villages, preaching and teaching and healing every disease, we're told when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Verse 36, why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you look at lost people and recognize that they're harassed and helpless and do you have a heart for them? Do you have a desire, a longing to bring them to the joy that you have experienced in Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, you have to have the heart of Christ. That's the whole point of being a Christian, is to be Christ-like. That's what the word Christian means. When we studied the book of Acts, we said that in Antioch they were called Christians for the first time. The word means what? Little Christ. If you're a little Christ, you should have the heart of Christ. And Jesus' heart is for the lost. Jesus said, when you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. Every Sunday we stand and we say, we believe that he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Do you realize everybody's going to be judged in the end? It's not just the wicked who get judged. We all get judged. When we say the creed, we say he will come again to judge the quick, that is to say the living, and the dead. Not the wicked quick. And the wicked dead, but all the living and all of the dead, the books are going to be open, and God is going to say, well, what did you do? <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> but part of this will be, well, Jesus is going to say, I had a heart for the lost. Where was your heart for the lost? So that's a third motivation for mission. We go because we recognize that the world is in a terrible state and only the gospel can change the world. We go because Jesus commands us to go and He is not only our Savior, He is our Lord. And we go because the love of God compels us. We have a heart for the lost as Jesus had a heart for the lost. Here's a fourth reason to go on mission. It's because it presents us with opportunities for advancing the kingdom of God. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. 
The way Paul describes us here is, is, I think, quite important. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 11. Paul, speaking to Gentiles, to people like us, says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the time, at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, that is to say, to Jews and to Gentiles. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We were once strangers and aliens, but now we are members of God's household. We were once subjects of the kingdom of this world, but we have become what? Citizens of the kingdom of God. Do you ever think of yourself in terms of that kind of citizenry? You know, that, that's something I'm aware of when I see tourists on the street in Charleston. I love this city, and I, I love what we represent. I love what we're about. I love the graciousness of this place. And when I meet visitors on the street, I love to talk to them. Because I want them to go away, and I want them to go away from here saying, those people in Charleston are absolutely marvelous. You know, that's, that place is so much better than Savannah. I mean, it, I mean, you know, Savannah's got its good part, but oh, Charleston, that, that, they're so gracious, they're so kind, they're so helpful. I had a group that stopped me just yesterday on the street. They don't know that I haven't lived here for a long time, but they saw the caller and assumed that I knew that I was talking about. So, and if you don't know, you, you know, you fake it. And so, but they came up to me and they were from North Carolina and they were from a college in North Carolina and they were on a scavenger hunt. They were on a scavenger hunt and they said, we're looking for the oldest church in Charleston. And I said, well, the oldest church building or the oldest and most distinguished congregation in Charleston. <laughs> And, and they said, well, our, our scavenger hunt says the oldest building. Oh, I said, oh, well, that's St. Michael's. It's around the corner. You can get to it here. And then they said, well, there's another thing that we need. And I said, what is that? They said, we need a picture of a palmetto bug. And I said, well, I said, uh, a palmetto bug is basically a, a genteel name for a roach. I said, um, but you're not going to find any. Yesterday was a little chilly. You're not likely to see one of these. But to complete the scavenger hunt, they had to do it. And they said, oh, we don't know what to do. We want to win this prize. And I said, look, I'll tell you what you do. You go up to Krogan's Jewelry Store. And they have got this Palmetto Bug-themed jewelry. Well, they were absolutely thrilled with that. They couldn't believe it. And they said, you people are so kind and so helpful. Those are brilliant. Well, thank you. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, but, uh, but you know, the, the point was that they went away feeling what? Loved. Loved, cared for, honored. See, I saw myself as an ambassador for the city of Charleston. Do you realize that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God? You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. That's the way the New Testament describes us. And so if you want to see your city recognized and acknowledged, and wouldn't you want to see the same thing if you're a citizen of God's kingdom? Wouldn't you want to see that kingdom advance? Wouldn't you want to see people come into that kingdom and be impressed by that kingdom and transformed by that kingdom? That's a motivation to be engaged in mission work, you see. 
because we have an opportunity as citizens of the kingdom of God to help serve the advance of that kingdom. Because we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are citizens. And here's the fifth motivation. It is the example set for us by Jesus himself. If it was good enough for Jesus, what does that song say, the old-time religion? If it was good for Paul and Silas, if it was good for Paul and Silas, if it was good for Paul and Silas, well, it's good enough for me. Well, if it was good enough for Jesus Christ and we are the followers of Jesus Christ, it ought to be good enough for us. Look again at how today's section begins. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus did that and we are called to do it as well. So mission should be a priority for a church that is serious about the gospel, serious about Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things that we want to do here in the years to come is to make mission a major priority. Now mission, of course, comes in different forms. It's not always foreign mission. There's home missions. There's missions right here. I think what David Gilbert does, for example, on Friday nights, I don't know how many of you are aware of it, but David Gilbert, our youth minister, has somewhere between 70 and 90 kids every Friday night in this very room. It's an amazing thing that it gets transformed by Sunday. But a lot of those kids are not St. Philippians. A lot of those kids are just community kids that have never been raised in the church, but their friends say, why don't you come with me to youth group? And David has the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And let me tell you, that is mission work. If you don't believe me, just step foot sometime on a campus or go to a football game and you're going to see the way, you know, when you go to a foreign land, people dress differently than we do as Americans, don't they? They, they talk differently, they act differently. If you don't think that the teen culture today is a foreign culture, they dress differently, they talk differently. My goodness, the way they communicate, OMG. It's a different culture, you see, but he's reaching out to that culture. That, that's mission work. You do not have to go to a foreign land to be engaged in the work that Jesus Christ is talking about here in Matthew. So if we're going to be a true church, we have to be a missionary church. Now, you might ask the question, well, that's all well and good, but how about some practical advice? How do, how do we go about doing this? How do we engage in mission. Well, Jesus sets us an example here. Let's take a look at the Lord's way of doing mission work. Again, chapter 9, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Keep your finger there in chapter 9 and flip back to chapter 4 for just a minute. Now, it's been some time since we were in chapter 4. This is before the Sermon on the Mount, but go back to chapter 4, verse 23. And I want you to keep your finger in Matthew chapter 9 because they're going to flip back and forth here for a second. Go back to chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That's what chapter 4, verse 23 says. Flip ahead again to chapter 9, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's almost word for word the exact same thing. Now what does that teach us about mission? It teaches us that Jesus kept at it. You know, we can get discouraged very easily when we're engaged in Christian ministry, particularly when the, the culture is hostile. And I'll be honest with you, Christian ministry can be frustrating. Take it from me, I know. It's one of the reasons why I used to love to cut the grass. I don't have a yard now, so there's no cutting of the grass. But it's one of the reasons I used to love to cut the grass, because there was a sense of accomplishment. I could look back and say, that has been done. And I could see the results. The problem with Christian ministry is that oftentimes you never see the results. Sometimes you can labor in a field over and over again, a gospel field that is, and feel as though you're not making any difference whatsoever. 
My first parish as rector was in the upstate in Chiral, and I was there for three and a half years, and I don't mind telling you, it was not easy. I was young, we had two children in diapers, my wife was in what they called the baby hole, and uh, we were just surviving, just trying to keep our heads above water, and uh, it was a conflicted parish between those who were sort of on the liberal end of the spectrum and those who were on the conservative end of the spectrum, and I sort of got thrown into there at the tender age of 26. And it was not easy. And when I left there after three and a half years, they were not glad to see me go, which was a relief. But I was glad to go. I'm not going to lie to you. But when I left there, I thought to myself, I don't know if we'd made any difference whatsoever. Ten years later, ten years later, I got a letter from a lady in that parish who told me she had been doing her daily devotions, and in the course of those daily devotions, she felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to write to me and tell me that until I had come to St. David's, she never knew she could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That was ten years later. I didn't think I made any difference whatsoever. But you see, it dawned on me at that moment that if that one person was converted... That was the reason I was sent to Gerald. You see, that's the way it is in Christian ministry. We want instantaneous results, don't we? We want to see people's lives changed and transformed, and it's not always that way. It wasn't even that way with the disciples sometimes. Paul went to Athens, and he preached his heart out up there on Mars Hill, but we're told there were only a few people who responded. The vast majority of people ridiculed him and mocked him. But the thing about Jesus is that he kept on. He kept on with the work. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. That is to say, when people are excited about it and even when they're not. That's true for us as Christians. You're never going to automatically get instantaneous results. Now, let me give you this little word of encouragement. The prophet Isaiah says, The word of the Lord never comes back void. It always accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent by God. So you can rest assured, if you are sharing the gospel, it is making a difference. The problem is you just may not see it. But Jesus kept at it. He not only kept on keeping on, he did it in a very particular way. The first thing he did is we're told he taught in their synagogues, which is to say Jesus looked for a point of contact. If you're going to do mission work, you have to find a point of contact, a way where you can meet the lost. Which means that as Christian people, we have to be prepared to branch out. You know, it's the tendency of human beings to do that which is comfortable and familiar. You ever noticed, in fact, I'm noticing it right now, that when you come for a Bible study like this, you have a tendency to go to the same table? With the same people? Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. But perhaps you should. But we do that, why? Because it's familiar to us. But Jesus went to those places where he could meet people, where he had the opportunity, where where the unbelievers were gathering. Now, you say to yourself, well, the synagogue doesn't seem like that kind of a place. But of course it was. Oftentimes, it was the leaders and the rulers of the synagogue who were opposed to Jesus. But he went there. He didn't wait for the crowds to come to him. He went to the crowds. If we're going to do mission work, we have to be prepared to branch out a little bit, to go to the places where people are. Jesus sent his disciples out. He didn't say, just preach the gospel. If you build it, they will come. Sort of field of dreams theology. He says, no, you go out to them. Jesus found a point of contact. Here's the second thing that Jesus did. Once he found that point of contact, he started with the scriptures. He started with the scriptures. That's what we find in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went through all, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That means we need to be a people who understand the scriptures. You'll never be effective in mission work if you don't know the Scriptures. And you'll never know the Scriptures unless we study them. It's interesting to note we are living in a time in which the Bible is more readily available than at any other point in history. 
and yet our knowledge of the Bible is at the lowest point in the nation's history. Did you know that? People have more Bibles available to them now than at any point in history, and yet our knowledge of the Scriptures is at the lowest point in history. We, we hardly know any passages. Maybe we know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Perhaps we know, judge not, lest ye be judged. That's a very popular one in our culture. Perhaps we know, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Oh, at least some of you are shaking your heads and realize that that was not the apostle. That was Benjamin Franklin, who was not an apostle, regardless of what some people might think. But see, we don't know this. And it's not just a matter of knowing Scripture. It's a matter of knowing the biblical story. So this is what it's part. You and I, people love stories. Human beings are drawn to stories. That's why we love movies that have great stories or books that have a great story. My friends, the Bible tells the greatest story of all, and each and every one of us have a part in it. You need to understand this grand drama, this great narrative the Bible is not just a collection of books. It is a library, but it is more than that. It has one author and it has one theme. It has many writers, but it has one author and one theme from Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation, and that is the redeeming work, the saving grace of Jesus Christ in history. And you need to understand what that is and how you fit into it and how you can proclaim that message to others. Jesus began with the Scriptures. And we're told that he preached to them. That is to say, he proclaimed to them. He preached the good news. Now, the Greek word here is caruso. It means to herald. We sing at Christmas, hark, the herald angels sing. What is a herald? A herald is a representative of a monarch. Like a town crier who goes through the street announcing some great news. That's the word that is used here. Jesus went in proclaiming, heralding the gospel in the same way that the angels did at the time of his birth, announcing good news. Do you realize that the Christian gospel is good news? It's interesting. The word here is preach. But it's not just preach because we're told he proclaimed, but he also taught. Preaching and teaching are not exactly the same thing. Teaching is instruction. It's unpacking the implications of the gospel. Preaching is heralding. It is announcing the good news of what God has done, and it is preaching with the intention of getting a heart response. And we're told that Jesus did both of those things. He preached and he taught. If you only have teaching without preaching, what do you have? You have cold academic information which makes no difference ultimately. On the other hand, if you have preaching with no real teaching, what do you get? You get some guy up front telling you what you ought to do, but you're wondering to yourself, why should I do it? That's why you need teaching. And let me tell you, the best sermons contain both. They contain preaching and they contain teaching. That is to say, they unpack the Scriptures, but they make you well aware of the fact that the Scriptures have an implication for your life. This information is being conveyed to you, not with the purpose that you are just wiser, but that you realize that a response on your part is required. So that's what preaching and teaching is all about, and that is exactly what Jesus was engaged in. He taught the people, but as he taught to them, he proclaimed to them the message of the kingdom, and he made it very clear that that proclamation had implications for their life, and they were expected to respond to it. When you walk out of church on Sunday, do you realize that you're supposed to respond to what you've heard? You know, I don't like the term recessional. We have a processional, and then we have the what? The recessional. Procession sounds like we're proceeding. Recessional sounds like we're what? Retreating. In our bulletins in my last parish, we always had the procession in and the procession out. Because we're coming in to worship the Lord and we're going out to serve Him in the world. We're not on the retreat when we leave. Let us go forth in the name of Christ. 
Well, thank you. I'm glad somebody gets it. Man, I'll tell you, you people could do better than that, and I know because on the first Sunday of Lent, I inadvertently said, Alleluia, 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 and 40 people came up to me and said, we're not supposed to say Alleluia in Lent. And then the last Sunday, the second Sunday in Lent, we didn't say hallelujah, and somebody shouted out hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah anyway. <laughs> We're not on the retreat. We're going back out into the world, you see. We are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus did. He preached the good news to them. Here's the third thing that he did. He healed their diseases. Jesus healed their diseases. Why did he heal their diseases? It was a sign of his authority, as we've already seen. It was to prove his message. We've talked about this before. Oftentimes, when Jesus would heal somebody, he would then strictly tell them not to share it with anybody else. It's what some people have called the messianic secret. In fact, on one occasion, when Jesus performed his first miracle, which was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, his mother came to him and she said, they've run out of wine, and he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. In other words, my time to be revealed as the Messiah has not yet come. If I start doing signs and wonders, people are going to recognize me for who I am, but it's going to be premature. So Jesus' miracles were done to do what? To authenticate the man and to authenticate his message. They were never to be ends in and of themselves. And yet they were signs of who he was. On one occasion, when John the Baptist had been arrested by King Herod and imprisoned in a desert fortress, even he began to have doubts. Was Jesus truly the one, or was there another to come? And he sent his messengers to Jesus, saying, Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus said, Go back and tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. Blessed is the man who does not take offense on account of me. Jesus was saying, You'll know by the proof. You'll know by the things that I've done. So Jesus did that, but he did that to do what? To authenticate his message. Now, that raises the question, well, what about healing ministries today? Obviously, Jesus went out, and we're to follow the example of Jesus. He went out teaching in their synagogues. We can do that. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, we are certainly can do that, and we're called to do that. But what about healing every disease and every affliction? Are we called to do that today? Well, let me just say that this is a bit of a mystery here for me. I'll be the first one to tell you I absolutely believe that God can and does heal even today. And I do believe that God does these things on a fairly regular basis. I will also tell you, however, that miracles by definition are rare. I mean, if miracles happened on a daily basis, they wouldn't be miracles. So we have to keep that in mind. And one of the things that we notice is that while they do happen with a degree of frequency, they do not happen with the degree of regularity that you saw in the New Testament period. And that, that's just a fact. I mean, when the Apostle Paul raised Eutyches from the dead, Paul was not praying, well, Lord, if it's your will, he spoke and it happened. And the same thing was true with the, um, the beggar at the temple gate called Beautiful, when Peter and John in the book of Acts were on their way up to the temple and they saw the man who was begging there at the temple gate and they said, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. He rose and he walked. So we do recognize that that sort of thing happened with a degree of regularity that we don't see. When I always said frequency, but not regularity like we saw in the apostolic era. And part of that is due to the fact that we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that the signs and the wonders were the marks, the things that authenticated the ministry of the apostles. So I do believe that these things happen. Now, do people have certain gifts of healing? Well, it certainly seems to imply in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that yes, some people have that gift. But what I want to say to you is when it comes to mission work, that's not our mandate. Jesus never said to his disciples, go ye into all the world and heal people. What did he say? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, if it so happens that God grants you with a gift of healing and you have the ability to do that, praise the Lord. But that's not your mandate. Your mandate is to do what? 
to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And if it is God's will that somebody be healed, then praise Him for it. So I think when we think about mission work and what Jesus did, we have to remember that to some degree our calling is a little bit different from that of Jesus, but there is a sense in which anybody who preaches the gospel, anybody who shares the good news is engaged in healing, isn't it? Aren't, isn't that true? But it's a healing on a much deeper level, a more profound level. This is the way John Newton put it. And somebody just pointed out to me that it was on this day in the 18th century that John Newton was converted. You know, John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace. It was on this very day that he was converted. He was in the bottom of a ship. He'd been thrown into the bottom of that ship. I don't know if you know the story. John Newton was a notorious fellow. Uh, he was involved, of course, in the slave trade, and uh, on one occasion he was a drunkard. They said he was the worst swearer in the maritime service. And um, he was really terrible. On one occasion, he broke into the captain's store of rum and tore up the ship and beat up a number of his ship's mates and eventually fell overboard. And the only way that they could get him back on board was that they had to, they decided not to throw a rope, they threw a harpoon. And it went into his leg and they dragged him on board with that and then they threw him down in the bottom of the ship in the bilge. And that was the kind of person he was. To the end of his life, he still had a gaping wound in one of his thighs as a consequence of that. That was the kind of person he was. And he was caught in this terrible storm, and it looked as though the ship was about to sink. And here was this man. They say there are no atheists in foxholes. And that was the case with John Newton. He cried out, Lord, have mercy. And the Lord did have mercy, and he was transformed. Well, this is one of his hymns. It was in the only hymnal. 1779, and this is what he wrote, Physician of my sin-sick soul, to thee I bring my case, my raging malady control, and heal me by thy grace. Pity the anguish I endure, see how I mourn and pine, for never can I hope a cure from any hand but thine. I would disclose my whole complaint, but where shall I begin? No words of mine can fully paint that worst distemper sin. It lies not in a single part, but through my frame is spread a burning fever in my heart, a palsy in my head. It makes me deaf and dumb and blind and impotent and lame and overclouds and fills my mind with folly, fear, and shame. A thousand evil thoughts intrude, tumultuous in my breast, which indispose me for my food and rob me of my rest. Lord, I am sick Regard my cry and set my spirit free. Say, canst thou let a sinner die who longs to live to thee? See, that's where real sickness is, isn't it? It's not just a matter of being healed of your physical maladies. It's a matter of being healed of your sin. And any time you go out and preach the gospel, any time you go out and share Jesus Christ, any time you bring somebody into fellowship with the great physician, you can rest assured he will touch them with his healing power and they will truly be made whole. So there is a sense in which you and I are called to be engaged in the same work that Jesus is engaged in, in a slightly different way, but in as profound and important a way. Well, that's what Jesus did as he went out preaching the gospel. But it's interesting to note that as Jesus went out and he was doing these things, what did he see? If you're going to be engaged in mission, what are you going to see? Well, here's what Jesus saw. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. If you go out to do mission work in the world, what you're going to see is you're going to see people, but you're going to see people who are harassed. They are helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And sometimes the Bible talks about sheep and goats. I never really understood why Christians were described as sheep, not goats. Because actually goats are wiser animals. They're smarter. I never realized this until I went to the Holy Land. And I actually had an opportunity to watch a shepherd who had a flock of sheep, but he also had goats. And he brought them out together in a field, and they were there, and they were eating. They were grazing. And I noticed something interesting about the goats. 
something that the goats did that the sheep did not. When a goat eats, it pulls up a tuft of grass and then it holds up its head and chews, looking around. What is he looking around for? Predators. That, that, that's what a goat does. A goat does not generally eat with his head down. He pulls up the tuft and he looks around to make sure that he is not threatened. Ah, but sheep. <laughs> Do you see a single sheep in that picture whose head is up? Because this is what sheep do. They are only concerned with what? With what is before them. And they graze with their heads down, and they go from one tuft of grass to the other, to the next tuft of grass, without ever looking up to see if there's any danger, and what's more, to see where they are going. That's why sheep wander away from the fold. They are so concerned with what is down there in front of their very eyes, they are no concerned with anything else, and the result is that they wander off, and they get lost. And when Jesus saw the crowds, what did he see? He saw people who were harassed, that is to say threatened, and they were helpless. Why? Because they were like sheep. They were sheep that had wandered off and they were therefore in peril and in danger. And sheep are helpless because they have nothing to defend themselves with. And it's interesting that that is the animal that Jesus uses over and over again. And not just Jesus, but throughout the Old Testament as well. That is the picture of people. It's a picture of sheep. And in the Old Testament, the complaint was that the problem was that the people were sheep and they didn't have shepherds. But then, of course, the good shepherd came, didn't he? And you and I as Christians are called to be under-shepherds of the good shepherd. you ever notice what a shepherd carries with him? He carries a crook. It's one of the reasons why bishops carry what is known as a crozier. It's a bishop's crook, a bishop's staff, because it is the job of the shepherd to do what? To protect the sheep. To protect the sheep. It's a crook because you sometimes have to pull the sheep back in line lest they wander off into peril. When Jesus looked at the world, that's what he saw. He saw poor sheep wandering off in danger and in peril, and he had come to do what? To bring them back. The word pastor, the word bishop, that's what they mean. Bishop means overseer. Pastor means shepherd. Is that what you see when you look at the world? Do you see people who've wandered off, harassed and helpless, with nothing, nothing to bring them home? Well, Jesus saw that, and he came to be their shepherd, but he also came to do something else. He came to appoint other shepherds as well. And that's what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then we have the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I think it's helpful just to take the last few minutes here and take a look at these pastors, these shepherds that Jesus appointed to watch over his flock. I think there's a great deal that we can learn just from these 12 men. Now, of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the beginning of the book of Acts named the 12 apostles. This is not the only place they're named. But what is interesting is that it's in Matthew that he pairs them up in twos. If I had to guess at this, it's because that's how Jesus sent them out, in twos. And it may very well be that they were paired up in this way. That's the way Matthew remembered them. And so we see them presented to us here, two by two. The first are Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. Who were these men? Well, they were fishermen. They were apparently brothers from Bethsaida. Initially, they had been disciples of John the Baptist. We know that because we're told that when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, we're told that Andrew, Peter's brother, left John and he followed after Jesus. 
So these were two brothers. They were fishermen from the town of Bethsaida. Originally, they were disciples of John the Baptist. In all the lists of the disciples, Peter is always named first. Judas is always named last. We're told that Judas is last. Why? Because he was the least of all the disciples. He betrayed Jesus. If Peter is listed first, it's because Peter is recognized as the leader of the disciples, the leader of the twelve. He's what we would call the primus inter pares, the first among equals. It doesn't mean that he had any authority over the others, but it does mean that he was chosen to be the leader of the others. Jesus gave Simon the name Cephas. It's Aramaic. It means rock. The Greek is Petros. It means Peter. And it also means rock. So evidently, Peter was the one who was the rock, the leader. We don't know as much about Andrew. He appears to be more reserved than his brother. But here's the significant thing to remember about Andrew, Peter's brother. We don't meet him him many times in the scriptures, but every time we do meet him, you know what he's doing? He's bringing someone to Jesus Christ. In fact, he was responsible for bringing Peter to Christ. So Andrew had a gift of evangelism. He may not have been as flashy and as powerful and as forceful a personality as Peter, but he had a place, and an important place. So you have Peter and Andrew. Matthew goes on to list two more, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They, too, were brothers. So we have brothers being called here. They were like Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They are referred to elsewhere in Luke's gospel as Boanerges. It means sons of thunder, which means they probably were forceful personalities, even more forceful than Peter. On one occasion, they wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan city and have it destroyed. So those were the kinds of men that these two were. They were the sons of thunder. They were ambitious. In fact, on one occasion, their mother, on their behalf, came up to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, allow my sons, one to sit at your right hand, one to sit at your left, when your power comes. So they were ambitious men, they were forceful men, but they were also faithful men. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And John lived a long life, a very long life, and died on the Isle of Patmos. According to tradition, he was the only one of the original 12 who was not martyred. I don't know about you, but that, that strikes me as interesting. Here are two brothers called by Christ, and one of them is the first of the apostles to die, and the other is the only one that escapes a martyr's death. Just goes to show us we don't know what God has, what His plans are, but His plans are perfect. The next two we meet are Philip and Bartholomew. Philip has a Greek name. It means lover of horses. His father had a Hebrew name. That suggests to us that he was probably what is known as a Hellenist. That is to say he was a Jew, but he was influenced by Greek culture, and he read the Old Testament in the light of Jewish Greek philosophical thought. A lot like Nicodemus, for example. Nicodemus is a Greek name. Now, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews in John chapter 3. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he had a Greek name, which probably meant that he was schooled in Greek philosophical thought. And it's interesting to note that toward the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had said over and over again, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, there comes a Jewish festival and Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for the festival and we're told some Greeks, that is to say some Gentiles, wanted to see Jesus and they went to Philip and they said, sir, we would see Jesus. And we're told that Philip took them to Jesus and Jesus said, my hour has now come. Why did they go to Philip? Probably went to Philip because he was somebody that they recognized and understood. He is also from Bethsaida, and as I said, the Greeks came to him. You have Philip and you have Bartholomew. Who is Bartholomew? We don't know much about him. He is the same person probably as Nathaniel. He is from Cana. And the one thing that Nathaniel is remembered for is that Jesus said he was an Israelite in whom there was no guile. 
So he was a guileless individual. But that's about all we know about Bartholomew. Then we have Thomas, and Matthew includes himself, Matthew the tax collector. Thomas was called Didymus, means twin, John chapter 11 and John chapter 20. What do we know about Thomas? Well, the first thing that everybody remembers about Thomas is that he was a what? A doubter. Following the resurrection, the other disciples had the opportunity to see the risen Christ. Thomas was not with them at the time. When Thomas returned, they told him and he said, I will not believe it. Unless I can take my hand and put it in his side and take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, I'll not believe it. And that's what everybody remembers Thomas for, the doubter. I think that's unfortunate. The reality is all the disciples doubted. Thomas was not alone, but that's the one thing we remember about him. But Thomas was also courageous. When Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, the other disciples tried to deter Jesus. They said, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And it was Thomas, not Thomas the doubter, but I think Thomas the courageous who said, well, if he has to go and die in Jerusalem, let us go and die with him. That's who Thomas was. And of course, it was Thomas's great confession of Christ, not only as Lord, but as God, that forms the culmination of the fourth gospel. There's Matthew. Who's Matthew? Well, Matthew, of course, is Matthew of this gospel. He is the tax collector. Mark refers to him as Levi in his gospel. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. James, the son of Alphaeus, is to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. What do we know about James? Very little. He's just the other James. Is he Matthew's brother? He may be. Why? Because he's the son of Alphaeus, and we know that Matthew's father was also called Alphaeus. So it could be that James and Matthew were brothers. If that's the case, here's another set of brothers being called to serve the Lord. He's paired with Thaddeus. The name means beloved. By elimination, just by reading the other Gospels, he's probably the same person who is mentioned elsewhere as Jude or Judas, the other Judas, not Judas Iscariot. The only thing we know about him is what is found, just a brief mention of him in John chapter 14. So some of these men were well known. We hear a great deal about Peter in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. Some of these men, we hardly hear anything more about them at all. There was Simon the Zealot, finally, and Judas Iscariot. Actually, he is called Simon the Canaanian. That's Aramaic for zealot. The zealots were a political party. They were a people who were attempting to overthrow Roman rule. They were always uh, plotting and scheming and trying to cause uprising and riots that would overthrow Roman authority. So apparently this man was part of that zealous party. And then, of course, the last one, there was Judas Iscariot. As I said, he is always mentioned last. There's some, there's some controversy about that word Iscariot. Um, is that the reference to a name place? Some people say that that is a reference to a town called Kerioth. It's the same town that Judah came from. If that's the case, then, if that's the case, then Judas Iscariot was a man from Kerioth. But some scholars argue that Iscariot is a form of the word Sicari. And the word Sicari means assassin. The assassins were a people closely related to the zealots. Now, I tend to gravitate toward that particular interpretation because at least as the way that Matthew pairs them up, that would make sense. If you had a man who was a former assassin who hated the Romans, who was paired up with a man who had been a what? A zealot. We know a little bit more about Judas Iscariot than we do some of the others. First of all, he was the treasurer of the group, but he was dishonest. We're told that he used to take out of the common purse. He pretended to be pious. On one occasion, we're told that a woman came and broke her perfume bottle and wiped Jesus' feet with it and dried his feet with her hair. And we're told that Judas was critical of that. He said that perfume could have been sold and given to the poor, but the gospel goes on to say it's not because he had any concern for the poor. It was because he was a thief. His betrayal is recorded in all four of the gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And his suicide is recorded in Matthew and in the book of Acts. If you go to Washington National Cathedral today, the main altar rail has 12 posts, and they are all carved figures of the 12 apostles. But the last one is a plain wooden block for Judas Iscariot. He has been cut off. Judas is one of the most pitiful people in all of history. Jesus said it would have been better had he never been born. So those are the 12, my friends. What do we learn about them? What do we learn from them? Well, we learned that they were called out into the world and be shepherds. They were called to go out and preach the gospel and in so doing, heal and to bring the sheep who had been lost into the fold of the Lord. I don't know about you, but to me, it is a most motley crew. <laughs> These men were about as different as they could possibly be. Now, just think about it for a minute. Just, just, just one example. You've got Simon, the Canaanian, Simon the Zealot, and he's a zealot, why? Because he hates who? The Romans. He hates the Romans. He's plotting the downfall of the Roman Empire, and Jesus calls Simon. Now, perhaps Jesus can do something with Simon. But if you're going to call somebody who hates the Romans, you better be careful about calling somebody like Matthew who worked for him. Can you imagine the tension that must have sometimes existed within that apostolic band? And you've got somebody like Peter, who's a strong personality, over and against James and John, the sons of thunder. Listen, folks, it is a motley crew. But God calls all kinds of people. They're not all exactly alike. God calls all kinds of people and He transforms all kinds of people and He sends all kinds of people out into the world. You're all familiar with the Latin phrase, e pluribus unum. What does it mean? Out of the many, one. That's the picture that we get here of the apostles. They are many, they are varied, they have competing personalities, and yet God by His grace did what? He transformed them, and He made those 12 men a force for change in the world, and we are here today as a consequence of that. If that means anything at all to you today, it means this. God has a job for you if you're a Christian. Your job is to be engaged in mission work, whether that's overseas or right here in your own neighborhood. You are called to be engaged in it. He has a job for you, and every single person who is a member of the church has a place. And the challenge is to find what your place and what your role is in this great mission that we are called to be engaged in. Dad, yes. There's a great example of that, and that's a good note to, to end on. It's not what I intended to end on, but it's a better note than what I intended to end on. That is exactly what we could do. That, that's a perfect example of that. You know, the amazing thing about St. Philip's, it's such an iconic building, everybody wants to get in to see it. I've said before, there are some churches people are dying to get out. We have people that are dying to get in, people from all over the world. You don't even have to go out, they're coming to us. But when you are a docent in the church, and I encourage you to do this, this is a wonderful ministry. People want to see. In fact, that's one of the things, I'll be honest with you, we get panned online about is that St. Philip's is oftentimes locked up like Fort Knox. They want to see it. But when they come, let me encourage you to do this. Tell them the story. Tell them the history. It is a marvelous and a rich history. But remember this, we are not the curators of a museum. That's not a museum. Well, we keep artifacts. That is the place where God's people gather to worship Him, 
to process in to worship him and to process out to serve him in the world. And when they come, share that story with them. There's an opportunity, just, just share a copy of the Gospel of John. Bill McIntosh, who was a member here who died some years ago, used to do that, I understand. He used to have this Gospel of John, and he would share that with people. It's an opportunity for us to do that. You don't have to be a theologian with a Ph.D. in theology in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the most exciting thing about living in Charleston right now. It may be frustrating in terms of the traffic and the hotels and all of those things, but let me tell you something, folks. God is bringing the people to us. Our job is simply to feed them. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that the church is called to mission. We thank you that Jesus sets us an example of how we are to do that. And we are thankful, Lord, for these 12 men. They were different. They were different. I'm sure they were frustrating to Jesus on more than one occasion. They were ordinary men, but you transformed them you made all of these men from their very backgrounds into one select group and they went forth to do extraordinary things. If you can do that with Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew and Judas, well, you can do it with us. And so, Father, we just pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon this congregation. And if there be those here from other congregations, anointing on them as well that we may as the family of God, go forth, processing into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. For we ask all of this in His name and in His power. Amen.